This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Hello, you're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, uh, and this is episode 52. That's right, we now have enough uh, back issues of the podcast that you can happily listen to one a week for an entire year, so that's a milestone worth uh, noting, I think. Um, And this week, uh, we are looking at the issue of philanthropy and public space, um, which I think is a really interesting theme because you can kind of think about it in two ways, which will come out through um, the things that I want to talk about in the podcast. One is the way in which philanthropy has influenced how we think about the idea of public spaces and the role it's played in kind of uh, creating and preserving some of those. But then conversely as well, it's interesting to think about the the way in which public space influences philanthropy and kind of shapes it. And, and those two different aspects, I think, will come out as we go along. Um, so in the first section, what I want to think about is uh, philanthropy uh, and rural public spaces. So thinking here a little bit about kind of conservation and preservation of habitat. Um, so I guess the first thing to say is that, that as we're talking through this section, obviously you can think of uh, philanthropy that are, that affects um, uh, the rural public space in, in kind of two obvious ways. One is um, donations of money used to purchase uh, land, uh, and the other one is donations of land uh, themselves. Uh, and both of them kind of play uh, an important role, although we'll see uh, a bit later on there are kind of uh, controversies certainly uh, occasionally around that. Um, the first thing I want to, to touch on is the the history of the kind of the idea of national parks so this is something we kind of take for granted uh, in most places nowadays the idea that there are some parts of our natural heritage that are preserved um, from development and habitation in many cases and kind of kept in as close as possible um, a pristine state in order to uh, kind of maintain them although as we'll see the the motivations and kind of theories behind why we do this actually differ quite a lot um in the u.s the the national parks uh, service was created in 1916 um, although by that point there had already been a number of kind of big donations of land so the the park service kind of very much stemmed out of philanthropy because there was already a kind of groundswell of people wanting to purchase or give over bits of land um, that they owned for sort of um, public access and ownership um, and interestingly the the first director of the the park service when it was instituted a man called Stephen T Mather um, was himself a, a big philanthropist he was a, a wealthy businessman um, and through his time as director of the service not only did he oversee um, the purchase of many areas of land uh, to turn into parks using uh, you know, public money and other philanthropist money. He put a lot of his own money um, also into to purchasing various different um, bits of land, so he kind of led very much by example. 
Um, and then that was followed by big donations from the likes of J.D. Rockefeller and his family, uh, and also um, uh, Andrew Mellon uh, as well, kind of uh, known from the Carnegie Mellon uh, dynasty later on. Um, the history of uh, national parks in the UA is interestingly quite different. Um, the the advent of the first national park in the UK comes quite a bit later, so only in 1951, when the Peak District was recognised by law as the UK's first official national park. Um, but it stems out of a kind of different uh, tradition of voluntary action, so not so much large-scale philanthropy, but more small-scale uh, voluntary action and uh, and kind of civic um, engagement and social change movements. So um, the the eventual uh, institution of the Peak District as a national park followed on from a long campaign um, by a kind of wide coalition of pressure groups uh, and political allies, including people like the Ramblers Association. Um, and most famously in 1932, um, a group of 500 activists, largely from Manchester, uh, undertook a um, sort of a protest by engaging in a mass trespass uh, on what was at the time private land on Kinder Scout uh, in the Peak District. Um, and they came into conflict with the police and there was violence and, and some arrests. But, you know, and opinions differ on whether or not uh, the Kinder Scout protest actually was a good thing or, in, you know, some people think it actually kind of held back the cause um, of kind of rights of access to what was at the time private land. Um but it's certainly been a kind of landmark in that eventual development towards the the system that we have today. Um, and I think the fact that uh, you know philanthropy and sort of financial philanthropy, particularly, is a kind of less overt part of the UK story is interesting. Um, but it possibly just reflects the fact that um, by the time when the conversation around national parks came about or came to prominence in the UK. There were already a lot of other organisations kind of channeling that philanthropic impulse um, around the issue of uh, kind of public space um, in the countryside. And particularly, I think it's really interesting to look at the history of the National Trust, which is um, one of the other kind of big uh, preservation bodies um, in this country. And sort of it's a charity in its own right. It's been around for a long time and it plays a sort of interesting quasi-governmental role in a lot of ways in that it's there to allow uh, land and buildings to be put into trust for the benefit of the nation um, and it's kind of has you know official sanction from the government um, in law to do that but it not is not itself um, a part of the the state so it sort of sits slightly separately to something like a national park service um, and the the way in which the national trust was founded and developed over time i think picks out some really interesting kind of tensions in the idea of, of preserving rural public space. Um, so there, there were kind of three big figures involved in the founding of the National Trust, um, the most famous of them being the housing reformer, Octavia Hill, um, but the, the other two were um, a clergyman called Canon Rawnsley um, and uh, Sir Robert Hunter, um, who was a lawyer. Um, and they reflected the kind of interesting mix of the sorts of people at the time who had a shared interest in the question of sort of public access to green space um, and the green space itself and they were an odd mix of kind of patrician tories um, political liberals and more kind of radical reformers um, 
and the sort of shifting balance between the the viewpoints that they represent has largely kind of shaped the the national trust over time as the balance of those those different positions has shifted um so octavia hill was obviously a social reformer known for her work around affordable housing in urban areas um and she was really most interested um in the national trust um because of her interest in the idea of the value of green spaces to improve the lives of the working class by enabling them to be able to go out to the countryside and kind of access these these rural spaces um, so that it would kind of benefit them uh, in health way and also just general quality of life. Um, Robert Hunter um, was sort of already an ardent supporter of the Commons Preservation Society um, and he was very much a champion of rights of access against landlords so um, there was a kind of slight class element uh, to it for him and a kind of principle of uh, of freedom uh, of access at stake. Um, Canon Rawnsley, on the other hand, was largely, uh, it, it sort of said, interested in the National Trust because he wanted to preserve um, the the countryside, particularly the countryside in the Lake District, um, against the encroachment of modernity and, and just for the sake of its own beauty. Um and I think this highlights the fact that there are a lot of different motivations for wanting to preserve uh, rural green space or um, kind of areas of countryside. And which one of these is driving the, mo- uh, the kind of desire in any particular case can have a big bearing on the way in which it's done and, and kind of how much benefit it brings to and, and to how many people. Um, and the, the sort of the history of the National Trust splits broadly into to three phases, and I'm drawing here very much on a, a really great article by Sir David Canadine, the, the historian who um, wrote uh, a kind of history of the first hundred years of the National Trust um, on the the uh, kind of event of its anniversary. Um, and the the first of those phases sort of focused very much on that idea of the preservation of land for its own sake and was pretty much sort of tied into quite sort of benign patrician Tory thinking and and the idea of the preservation of um, of rural England or at least a kind of idea of rural England rooted in the earlier Victorian era uh, and sort of seen as a necessity you know kind of providing a bulwark against the the forces of modernization and industrialization and this is the sort of thinking actually that you see reflected um, very much in the work of people like uh, J.R.R. Tolkien Um, so it's often noted in his work in the hobbit and the lord of the rings that the the idea of the shire and particularly the um the end of the the lord of the rings trilogy when you have the scouring of the shire and soroman comes in and kind of creates these smog bellowing factories is essentially uh, his kind of view of the the evils of industrialization and the, the impact that it has on the english countryside and that was very much the sort of thinking that was behind um the first phase of the national trust or the first sort of meaningful phase when it came to to real prominence um and in terms of that that kind of big question of are you prioritizing um preservation of those spaces for for their own sake or are you prioritizing access to them uh for democratic reasons or in order to kind of open them up for uh, so that people can get wider benefit it, it, at that point it was very much more about the the former as about preservation of those areas for their own sake and there were probably plenty of people involved who weren't especially interested in enabling access for you know the uh, the proles or the working classes to those places 
Um, interestingly, the, the second phase, which sort of happened from about the late 30s until the mid-60s, um, took it sort of in a different direction, but is probably even more problematic, at least in my view. So at that point, there was a big change in terms of the, the trusteeship and the leadership of the National Trust. Um, and it essentially became um, largely controlled by a group of landed aristocrats from sort of very long-standing families. And they shifted the operational focus of the National Trust towards purchasing country estates and, and country houses. So not just areas of land, but specifically kind of large um, manor houses. Um and, you know, essentially this was a way of allowing them or people like them to offload the burden of having to look after and maintain those buildings themselves, which was often, you know, extremely expensive because the upkeep of these houses is often absolutely exorbitant. And so they used the resources of the National Trust on the, the sort of premise that the this was in uh, the kind of wider interest of the nation to have these buildings preserved. Um, and that's what they largely sort of spent their time doing. Um, and in terms of that question of preservation and access, this probably took it even further away from the idea of access because many of the people involved were not just sort of patrician but kind of actively sneering about the the general public and had little idea in the uh, little interest in the idea of kind of uh, allowing access to any of these buildings that wasn't really the motivation for doing it um, and kind of concerns about the way in which the the organization had gone eventually led um, in 1967 to uh, an external review which reported pretty damning findings and kind of recommended some sweeping reform um, most of which was instituted and that kind of heralded um, the start of a, of a third phase of the National Trust um, and there's a couple of things in there. One is um, a kind of uh, the start of a, an increasing focus on the idea of environmentalism and the, the role of conservation and preservation of land in that. Uh, and that sort of tied into a wider awareness of that issue, um, very largely as the result of um, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, which had a kind of incredible impact as a single publication on bringing these issues to public awareness. Um, and the other way in which the, the trust started to move, although it didn't really kind of pick up speed probably until uh, the 1980s on this front, was recognising a kind of wider conception of conservation and heritage that included industrial heritage um, and where where it was also looking at rural heritage, thinking about the lives of ordinary people as well as just the kind of landed gentry and, and aristocracy. And the interesting thing as you look at the National Trust today is that it's now kind of reflects all of those different phases because the the holdings are very much a mixture of uh, kind of areas of countryside, um, uh, kind of country houses and estates, but also bits of industrial heritage and kind of bits of urban heritage. Um, so over time, it's kind of organically added all of those layers on top that have added up to a, a whole that, that looks quite complex. Um, but I think the thing that it really brings to light is that kind of interesting question of access versus preservation. Um, and as we'll see later on, I think this continues to be a tension around the idea of public space even now. OK, um, so in the next section, we're going to move on from the idea of rural public space to look at uh, the role that philanthropy plays in preserving urban public space. So stay tuned for that.
Okay, so we're back. Um, yeah, and in this section, I want to look at uh, urban public spaces, which kind of picks up on a lot of the themes we've already talked about in the first half, but hopefully kind of takes them a bit further and raises some new questions as well. Um, so here we can think um, to start off about the, the history of urban parks and green spaces, um, where you know, a lot of the kind of motivations and questions are probably uh, similar to those that arise around the the idea of preserving rural green spaces. You know, it's kind of partly about questions of access versus preservation, uh, whether it's done for the sort of environmental benefits, whether it's uh, done for uh, the kind of benefits of providing public spaces for people to come together and all those sorts of things. So in the UK, um, the, the history of um, public parks is is interesting. It's probably, uh, I think, some of the oldest official public parks in the world exist here. And there are a couple that kind of vie for the title. So um, notably, Derby Arboretum um, claims to be Britain's first public park. Um, so it was created by the philanthropist Joseph Strutt um, in 1840. Um, supposedly, the motivation was that he wanted to give something back to the workers who he recognised had played a crucial role in uh, enabling his family to accumulate such a large degree of wealth, which is you know pretty enlightened for, for a Victorian philanthropist. Um, and he was doing this at a time when there was little or no uh, kind of freely available public space. Most spaces had to be paid for um, or you had to, to kind of pay to access them. Um, and he, he wanted to do this as a gift to, to those workers and the kind of wider community in Derby. Although it is important to say that um, the park was only actually uh, free on Sundays and Wednesdays until 1882. So you know, it was only kind of limited in his, his desire to, to, uh, to, to kind of uh, benefit those communities. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it is interesting and it's definitely, you know, if you accept it as a kind of quasi-public park, at least in those early stages, it's the earliest one um, that anybody's aware of and so it can justifiably lay claim to that crown. Um, but then the other one which probably can justifiably came to be the first true public park in the sense that um, it was funded largely from public money and subscriptions and from the outset was uh, available uh, and accessible for free by the public was Birkenhead Park uh, on the Wirral near my uh, now hometown of Liverpool um, and uh, this has played an interesting role in the kind of global development of public parks because uh, the design of it certainly was seen as a kind of template for how to do things. Um, particularly, it's often noted that um, Frederick Law Olmsted, who designed uh, Central Park in New York, uh, visited Birkenhead Park in 1850 and was very taken with it and incorporated many of the um, design elements from the park into his eventual design for, for Central Park. Um, it's it's worth noting at this point that it, there are quite a few instances in which um, uh, parks and urban parks uh, around the UK were based on donations of land, um, land holdings, rather than donations of money from wealthy donors. And in some cases, you know, these were absolutely kind of admirable and well-intentioned. But because there was often a relationship between philanthropists and the public sector, and so it wasn't so much about an outright donation, but it was about the public sector purchasing land from a donor um, in order to bring it into to public ownership, 
Uh, there were instances where some of these gifts were met with scepticism because it was felt that the philanthropist was very much getting the better part of the deal. So there's just an interesting quote from uh, a Liberal Review magazine in 1890 um, about uh, some the exchange of land that happened to create Sefton Park in uh, just north of Liverpool. And it says, The most interesting item in the evidence given by the city surveyor related to the gain which had come to Lord Sefton by the development of Sefton Park. The agricultural value of the land to Lord Sefton was £1,350, but that fortunate nobleman received from the Liverpool Corporation the sum of £250,000. So that's a pretty sweet profit uh, that Lord Sefton managed to make there, but does raise some questions about whether the public actually uh, got a good deal in that case. Um, and then shifting across the Atlantic to, to the US, here the history of urban uh, parks is is very important in kind of understanding philanthropy over there and continues to be a very big part of philanthropy today some of the kind of most notable donations certainly over the last decade or so have been to public parks so i'm um, thinking thing of things here like the high line um in new york which is a really interesting park uh, funded by uh, some uh, money from um, Barry Diller and Diane von Furstenberg, I think, sort of to the tune of hundreds of millions of pounds. But they they and a bunch of other uh, extremely rich donors uh, all contributed to take over an old piece of elevated railway in the city and turn it into a kind of long strip of urban green space. And it's a really interesting thing to go and visit. Um and this sort of builds on uh, you know rich history in New York, um, certainly around Central Park, where um, that's for a very long time had a, a model of um, philanthropic funding centered around the Central Park Conservancy, which was set up uh, specifically to kind of attract and manage philanthropic donations for that green space. Um, and this has been replicated um, to some extent in other parts of uh, of the US. Um, particularly there have been some sort of notable examples of uh, very wealthy donors coming in and creating huge new urban parks and, and green spaces a way of kind of you know stamping their um, their kind of civic pride on an area. Um, and it's not been uncontroversial you know some people have noted um, that these kind of raise questions you know the usual questions with um, extremely large money philanthropy about you know how this um, kind of interacts with local democracy to what extent the donors are kind of dictating um, how that green space is shaped but also I think around the the distribution of resources so it's it's often noted in the New York case that um, you know the Central Park Conservancy does amazing work and lots of people in New York absolutely love Central Park but it does attract all of the a lot of the philanthropic money at the expense of any money that could be going to some of the outlying parks in other boroughs of the city. Uh, and certainly this became um, a kind of element of some controversy um, in the run-up to the, the last mayoral elections when Bill de Blasio was eventually uh, elected because um, it certainly became part of his campaign to kind of question this and look into whether they needed to have more of a redistributive mechanism. Um, and I think, you know, this continues to be a question about whether if you are using uh, philanthropic donations, particularly from the well-off to fund public parks and green spaces, do those disproportionately end up going to parks and green spaces that benefit 
those wealthy people um, rather than those in other areas that might benefit people from kind of poorer or more marginalized communities and so do you need to think about having some sort of mechanism for ensuring that uh, that things are kind of smoothed out because you know as we've discussed many times on the podcast before uh, one of the differences between sort of philanthropic funding and public funding is that public funding has more of a requirement to ensure equality across different geographies and um, different kind of demographics um, because you know it's kind of ultimately uh, responsible uh, through the electoral system to taxpayers and citizens whereas philanthropy is is inherently kind of based on the uh, you know the voluntary choices of individuals so doesn't necessarily have those drivers um, and you know this will continue to be I think a big question um, as you know increasingly in the future we'll talk about in a moment uh, parks and green spaces are increasingly going to have to look to philanthropic funding or other forms of funding as public money uh, very much seems to be drying up um, but before we come on to that I just want to mention the other thing to say in an urban context is that it's not just about public parks and green space uh, necessarily we should also think about non-green urban spaces um, in the sense that there are some things that might not necessarily tick most people's um, box in terms of kind of aesthetic beauty but actually if you're thinking more broadly about the value of public space in terms of things like um, civic engagement or kind of giving people shared public space um, then you know things like um, you know sports facilities or you know skateboard parks these sorts of things or just community buildings where people can hold uh, kind of public meetings of one form or another or interact um, you know those have a lot of the the same benefits so I think we need to think more broadly than just this is about parks and green space and I guess that brings us neatly onto the the question of what is the value of public space in an urban context um, you know some of which is the same as the value of public space in a rural context um, although it kind of perhaps because of the the population distribution some of this stuff is felt more keenly and one of those things I think is just about the role that it plays in creating shared spaces for people to come together and what that means for civic engagement and community cohesion. So um, the famously the book by Robert Putnam, Bowling Alone, um, explored and sort of brought to prominence the idea of social capital. So those kind of invisible bonds between people that kind of make up the, the health of the, the fabric of society. And his argument there was that over time, social capital in the, U, the US had declined. And this was partly down to um, a kind of decline in shared public spaces and, and a sort of spirit of um, voluntary association that that fostered. Um, and, and it's interesting in those cases that you get... Um, you know, there's two types of social capital, um, or, without going into too much uh, kind of detail about it, but broadly two types. Anyway, there's kind of so there's uh, bonding social capital, which is supposed to be the social capital or the ties between people who exist in a sort of relatively homogenous group. So it's kind of the links that you make with people who are like you. Um, and then there is bridging social capital, which is the links that happen between people from different walks of life. Um, and that's where I think kind of shared uh, public spaces in an urban context are particularly important, because without those, that bridging social capital can be very difficult to achieve because 
you know uh, what tends to happen through processes like gentrification um is that you know rich people live in one part of the city and poorer people live in a different part of the city um and over time you know ne'er the twain shall meet and actually they they sort of increasingly lead to entirely separate lives and if you don't have those points of contact that happen in kind of shared public spaces then it can be very difficult for those those different communities to become very isolated from one another and that means that it's more difficult to have empathy you don't have kind of community cohesion there isn't a sort of shared understanding of everybody's role in civic life and all those sorts of things so it can be very problematic um another thing i just wanted to flag up in in terms of coming back to that question of kind of not so much green space but public buildings is you know the role that um that sort of public buildings have played in fostering um not just civic engagement but um kind of uh philanthropy over time and here i think it's um interesting to think about the role of pubs um so i came across a a good quote in a paper not long ago just about the role that pubs played in the development of um, philanthropy and the idea of charities in the victorian era um which i'll just quote from here so it said for many generations the public house had been focused for community class trade and other interest groups who had met with little formality or structure to their proceedings. Such groups were a crucial base for voluntary societies. The friendly societies, the most numerous of all the voluntary societies, never became detached from their public house origins despite the building of Oddfellows Halls and the likes in many of the larger towns. The discussion society and the public and subscription libraries all had origins in the public house or replaced similar public house functions. The drinking club, whether in a public house or private rooms, had a place in the life of most 18th century urban elites. So the idea here is that actually the pub, you know, started off because people like coming together to have a drink, but actually that process of people coming together and having a drink and uh, finding that they have shared interests or kind of shared dislikes um, and probably complaining about them is a really strong spur to action and actually kind of played a large role in driving people to to kind of freely associate and form groups that eventually kind of turned into voluntary associations and formal charities. Um, another thing, just in terms of that question of the value of public space, thinking particularly here about um, kind of parks and green space, is that they have value in themselves, um, but increasingly I think we're also aware that they have wider benefits um, uh for society and kind of particularly at uh, an individual level around things like health and well-being so there's a lot of evidence that access to green space and use of green space has a really positive impact on mental health uh, and also that it has a positive impact on um, childhood development so children who are able to kind of access those green spaces generally kind of their life chances are improved um and also you know in a sort of more in a small piecemeal way there is a question about whether those um uh, those parks and green spaces are an important element of combating climate change i mean i wouldn't pretend for a second that they are the entire answer to that question because you know i think we're all aware at this point that uh, some pretty sort of huge uh, structural uh, issues need to be addressed if we're genuinely going to combat that but every little bit that can be done in terms of creating more areas of green space can help with issues like climate change and biodiversity just by creating kind of urban oases. And and it's interesting to see uh, things like London at the moment is um, going through a process of trying to position itself to be recognised as the world's first um, 
uh, urban park city or urban national park city by connecting up all these different sort of disparate areas of green space. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Um, and then before we finish this section, I just want to think about some of the challenges perhaps that face um, the kind of philanthropy when it comes to urban public space. So one, as we alluded to already, is um, the challenge of facing up to the fact that um, austerity and declining public money is putting a stress on the maintenance of these public uh, spaces. And so there's a question about, um, you know, how to what extent philanthropy is being expected to step into the breach and and when it does so whether you can find sustainable models um because you know these it's not just a one off thing it's you know it's nice to give a lot of money to for the creation of a park but then the actual ongoing maintenance of the park and those sorts of things require money as well and and is relying on philanthropic donations genuinely sustainable because you know if you're particularly if you're talking about sort of individuals at a higher level giving large amounts their interests may well change and so they might decide to give to something else or feel that their contribution has been done so do you look more to a kind of mass market subscription model and then you know how does that work or do you look to kind of create earned income um, or kind of run on sort of social enterprise principles and lots of different parks around the UK and beyond are kind of to, to grapple with these questions now um, as we've also mentioned there's that question about the distribution of resources so if you are going to be looking for any form of philanthropic funding where it's um, at least partly or wholly dictated by the choices of individuals what does that mean in terms of the overall distribution of resources going to public spaces and people's ability to access them? How do you ensure that the money just doesn't go to uh, the places that are kind of near to where wealthy people live and that they're able to enjoy so that you have a few, few areas of absolutely wonderful kind of urban green space near those wealthy areas and then all the rest are left to kind of wither on the vine? Um, and then the other thing that that we sh is worth noting is um, kind of concern about the emergence of quasi public spaces. So this is something we've seen in in urban areas, and it's certainly there's been quite a bit written about it in London, where increasingly there are these bits of sort of parks and green space, or sort of plazas and, and urban spaces that have all the kind of look and feel of traditional public space, but actually are owned by private companies um and uh, and so you know don't actually have the characteristics of of uh, uh public space and so uh in terms of you know the the impact that that has on democracy it sort of raises some interesting questions particularly you know, around things like civil liberties um surveillance and all these kinds of things and actually in terms of the important functions of public space in an urban environment if if these sorts of quasi-public spaces don't meet those needs, is there a danger that we sort of uh, fail to recognise that actually there is far less shared public space in our cities uh, than we think because all of these quasi-public spaces have emerged and sort of lull us into a false sense of security? Okay, um, well that brings that section to a close. And then in the final section, uh, I want to uh, come on and talk about sort of broader ideas of virtual public space and what they mean for philanthropy. So stay tuned for that. Okay, so we're back for the final section and 
I have to say, I thought this was going to be a reasonably short episode, but once again, I seem to have managed to surprise myself with my ability to talk. So I will attempt to keep this uh, this final section punchy and brief. Um, so in this section, I want to talk uh, about philanthropy and virtual uh, public space um, in a couple of different ways. And I'll probably you know, try not to go into too much detail uh, in, in the interests of keeping things brief. Um, so the first is the, the idea of the, the public sphere, which is kind of tied to the idea of physical public space in that, you know, it's about people coming together and interacting and sharing ideas. But it's the kind of theoretical layer that goes on top of that. So I'm thinking here of the work of people like Jürgen uh, Habermas, um, who's written a lot about the concept of the public sphere. And in tracing where that comes historically, it's often linked to the idea of the sort of uh, coffee shop culture that emerged um, in the sort of mid 17th century and, and went on to the 18th century, whereby people came together in these coffee shops and shared places and kind of uh, the idealized version is they had these, you know, wonderful kind of informed, enlightened debates about things. And this led to all sorts of different uh, developments in, in the fields of commerce and politics and, and civil society. Um, and you know this this continues i think to be a very important kind of um uh, theoretical framework for philanthropy because um the idea of the public sphere i think kind of underpins a lot of the sense of what is important about civil society in terms of having that space between the individual uh, and the state that isn't the private sector uh, and it's you know it's notoriously difficult to uh, actually kind of draw any boundaries around what civil society is but in broad terms that sort of gives you a sense of it um and this is kind of played into the history of philanthropy in some interesting ways so um in uh, an episode of this podcast um last year i think we talked about uh women and philanthropy and one of the things that that we talked about there was the the role that philanthropy played uh, in terms of giving women uh, a way into the public sphere, which at first was very much the preserve of men. So it was felt that the domestic sphere was the, the, the preserve of women, so women were allowed to look after the household, and that was sort of where they had their power. But as soon as you were talking about the public sphere, so the sphere of politics or you know the sphere of ideas and, and debate and these things... Um, that was very much the realm of men and you know was, the idea of women giving speeches or anything was absolutely unheard of hence kind of Samuel Johnson's famously uh, misogynistic quote about uh, women who speak and dogs which I won't bother going into here um, but the interesting thing is that philanthropy and kind of voluntary activity um, provided a means for women to get into the public sphere because it was sort of seen as an extension of the domestic sphere but but outside the home. So the idea was that a lot of female charity in the Victorian era particularly was driven by concepts of, you know, maternal instinct and these sorts of things. So it was appropriate for women to be thinking about and thinking in sort of empathetic terms about others, but they were increasingly sort of allowed to go out of the home uh, and to do things like associate with others and join organisations and get involved in voluntary associations. And over time, this led to some of them increasingly kind of uh, taking a part in campaigning and advocacy on social issues and thereby sort of finding a voice in that pub public realm and establishing the idea that perhaps, you know, women could play an equal part in that public sphere. Um, so it's sort of 
you know, interesting the extent to which uh, philanthropy uh, has kind of opened up that that public sphere beyond its its original confines. Um, in terms of where things stand today, um, I think there's a couple of things that are that are interesting to flag up. So one is the uh, the kind of the idea of the closing space for civil society. So this is a trend that uh, has been noted by many, whereby kind of repressive regimes around the world, um, and also sort of regimes that might not see themselves as repressive, but you know are increasingly kind of facing up to the reality of things like political populism um, and that sort of thing are introducing new restrictions and laws and regulation that are limiting people's ability to freely associate or to speak out freely and thereby are closing down or limiting that that public sphere or the space for civil society. So in one sense the the idea of closing space here is is a metaphor because we're not necessarily talking about physical space. But also it's important to note that physical space is a part of it because in many of these places restrictions on actual physical public space are an important part of limiting the space, the more the wider space for civil society. Um, and one interesting dimension of this, which brings us on to the, the last thing that I want to talk about, is we're, we're speaking here about kind of virtual public spaces in a theoretical sense, but in a digital world actually there is a whole realm of kind of virtual digital public space that now exists uh, alongside physical public space. So there are places where people can meet and interact and convene and share ideas and organise online that don't necessarily always have any direct analogue in the physical world or, or sometimes uh, quite often exist alongside them and supplement them. Um, and this is potentially hugely powerful and we've all sort of seen the the power of kind of networked protests and things like uh, me too and black lives matter uh, and you know although sort of theoretically contested the role that things like the internet have played in the arab spring and, and other protests um, but they do raise some some sort of quite serious questions so one is the sort of fundamental point that a lot of the places where people go in order to interact in this seemingly uh, sort of pub digital public sphere actually aren't public at all. Um, you know, the, the ideals of the internet very much were about it being a kind of decentralised place where everyone could interact with, you know, no form of centralised control. But actually the reality is when people do uh, kind of uh, go into the, the digital realm in order to, to organise or communicate, they are usually doing so through platforms like Facebook or WhatsApp or Twitter or whatever. And these platforms often present themselves as if they are a neutral public space, but they aren't, and we're all kind of increasingly aware of that. Um, and, and, you know, that happens in a couple of ways. I mean, one is that they are often essentially monopolies, so in many places, uh, you know, Facebook, it's often said Facebook is the internet. So if you if you access the internet in some countries, that basically means using Facebook. Um, and, you know, the concern that this raises is that it puts the gatekeeping role of those private companies who don't have democratic accountability front and centre. Um, so, you know, we've kind of started to see concerns being raised about 
the the responsibilities of platforms when it comes to controlling things like hate speech um, and you know their arguments that actually they are merely platforms not publishers and they don't have those responsibilities and the debate that that's generated um, but also the role that they play in kind of limiting people's ability to associate uh, online and their relationship for instance with authoritarian regimes so you know there are kind of questions that have been raised about whether in some jurisdictions these platforms uh kind of um kowtow to the to the the kind of uh the rules that are that are put in place by governments and where rights organizations for instance or kind of other civil society organizations are trying to use the technology as a way of organizing to resist some of that authoritarian tendency um you know it's hugely problematic if they're doing so on a platform and the platform then kind of decides to you know kind of uh, infringe their ability to do so because it's not genuine public space and they are the gatekeepers of it so actually that kind of question of who gets to to decide and you know if these things uh are genuinely acting as the new public sphere whether we need to think more carefully about the the kind of the ownership of them or the responsibilities that should be placed on on anyone who who kind of does own or maintain them i think will will be a big issue into the future um and i think they also raise some kind of broader questions for civil society around um things like the idea of authenticity so it's something i've written about before which is um you know i think authenticity is a kind of crucial part of maintaining trust in civil society and it's a crucial part of the kind of cultural cachet that civil society has and in a digital environment that could be more difficult to maintain because there are all sorts of new threats in the form of kind of misinformation and fake news uh things like algorithmically generated deep fakes and others um so actually if the digital public sphere is to be the new public sphere I think civil society organizations need to go into that entirely kind of open-eyed to some of the challenges that that might bring new challenges uh, in terms of kind of maintaining their authenticity in the future um okay so that sort of brings us to a close and i just want to kind of conclude with a with a couple of thoughts about what we've talked about um one is you know um that we highlighted up front and it's sort of run through a lot of this particularly when we're talking about physical public space there's always been seemingly a tension between the idea that the reason for doing that is the preservation of the space itself um, and the idea that it's primarily about access and i think it will be interesting to see in the future um, particularly um, with the kind of increasing drivers from environmentalism how that goes because you know some would argue um, that actually uh if we are genuinely going to preserve the planet in a meaningful way, one of the things we'll have to do is kind of go through large-scale rewilding or allow lots of uh, areas to essentially go back to wilderness. Um, and in those cases, actually, uh, we would actively have to prevent human beings from using those areas. Um, now, that that you know, some people would kind of uh, take issue with that fundamentally, but also it raises question of. You know, does that sort of uh, you know blanket ban on people? Is it a genuine blanket ban, or do you run the risk again of introducing new inequalities? Because you could see a situation in which wilderness areas were 
implemented for environmental reasons, but then a very small number of people with sufficient resources were able to access them um, uh, and other people weren't. So actually kind of access to uh, green space and kind of shared public space would be uh, much more limited than it is now. You know, uh, and actually then in terms of that balance of access against preservation, we would have ended up going in a direction that many people would feel was kind of uh, undemocratic. Um, I think it's also interesting in in the context of cities to to kind of think more about the importance of shared spaces for fostering civic engagement. So something we've mentioned already, but I know there's lots of people doing work on this, on the idea of uh, kind of creating new shared spaces in urban areas to to bring people together. Um, and I think there are interesting elements here around kind of how you physically design those spaces to make sure that you actually genuinely do bring people together and just sort of bring different communities together in the same space but not have them interacting so how you genuinely create that bonding social capital um, and also about what the ownership structure is so how do you you know kind of genuinely pass on ownership of those uh, assets into kind of public hands or kind of community hands in a way that doesn't just offload cost or financial responsibility onto those communities um I think also linked to that, you know, as we've said, we need to think in broader terms about what some of those public spaces might be. Um, so, you know, in an urban space, yes, it might be kind of parks and green space, but it might also be non-green space of one sort or another, make community buildings, um, kind of you know, leisure facilities and those sorts of things. And also um, we should think, you know, beyond the physical into the, the digital realm. So actually in terms of the role of philanthropy in preserving public space, what what role could there be in in kind of carving out areas of the digital world that's that's our genuine public space and making sure that you know the whole of that uh, seemingly digital public space isn't in fact owned and controlled by the private sector? If we have concerns about what that means in terms of gatekeeping and kind of access. Um, and then I think the final thing to say is, you know, we also need to be aware of some of the potential risks of reliance on philanthropy as a way of uh, kind of funding and maintaining public space. Um, so, you know, we've said already that philanthropy, you know, for all of its virtues is not necessarily good at things like maintaining equity or kind of um, distributing well across geographic areas or different demographics. Um, and actually, we need to factor that into our thinking if we are sort of increasingly looking to philanthropy as a source of funding. We need to be kind of aware of what its strengths and weaknesses are so that we don't inadvertently introduce new inequalities into the system. OK, so uh, I haven't in any way managed to keep that one briefer than normal, so apologies for that. Um, but uh, hopefully you found that interesting. Um I'll put links uh, in the show notes to sort of various things that are relevant to what I've been talking about. Um, if you're interested more broadly in um, sort of thoughts and writing and video and all sorts on philanthropy and civil society, check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, do follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. Um, if you've got ideas for themes we could talk about on future episodes or people I could interview, uh, drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, just like, subscribe, uh, leave us a nice review on wherever you get your pod uh, podcasts, uh, tell all your friends about it, and I will see you next time. Bye!